This is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime. Because this is hell. And a great fortune is being made in the pharmaceutical industry, especially here in the United States. Why the United States? Because unlike many other countries, we do not allow a national health care agency to negotiate drug prices with pharmaceutical manufacturers. So why don't we allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices with pharmaceutical companies in a way that would drastically lower the price of life-saving drugs, thus making them accessible to the people who de- depend on them to, you know, live? Well, according to today's guest, a big part of what makes pharmaceutical prices so much higher in the United States than the rest of the world is, among other things, we allow pharmaceuticals to engage in stock buybacks, which drive shareholder demand for higher prices, higher prices that benefit top executives. According to our guest today in 2021, the average annual compensation for highest paid executives at these pharma companies was 61 million dollars in one year 93 percent of which came from realized gains from stock based pay that's like 55 million of the 61 million why then do we put up with these high prices in the u.s but elsewhere consumers pay much less for pharmaceuticals that's because we've apparently fallen for the very misleading claim by the industry that they need those high prices to pay for all their Amazing innovations, innovations which are funded far less than uh, far less than by stock buybacks and are funded at about the same rate as industry lobbying. Innovations that are actually funded through the public are what we actually use. In a few minutes, we'll find out how and why Big Pharma sets its prices so high here in the U.S. of A., but not so much elsewhere. When we speak with a reporter at The Lever, thelever.com, Julia Rock, who will join us to discuss her article, How Big Pharma Actually Spends Its Massive Profits. New research shows that pharmaceutical companies have spent more on enriching shareholders than drug research and development over the past decade. Julia is a public records requester and researcher. Her most recent writing is a story headlined, Corporations Are Pushing the Supreme Court to Crush Unions. You can follow Julia on Twitter at J-U-L, then the number one, A-Rock. Julia Rock, except just replace the I with the number one. You can send her tips at jrock at levernews.com. Julia is the second writer from The Lever to appear on This Is Hell in as many weeks. We started 2023 by having on as our first guest of the year, Esme von Hoffman, who spoke with us about her writing on FTX and how we should not have schadenfreude about crypto bros losing money because most people who are crypto investors do not fulfill the stereotype of a crypto bro and are in fact often already marginalized people who are targeted and duped by the crypto scam. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host. Chuck Mertz producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how are you? How's your week been? I'm good, Chuck. Good morning. It's been good. Um, I just got back from Atlanta. 
I just took a little trip down to Atlanta, yes. Atlanta. Oh, that's it. right, because you, you were telling me you were going to be going down there last weekend. So how was it? It was great. I saw friends. saw my friend's sister. saw my friend's sister's baby. As cute as the Dickens. <laughs> so did you? Uh, you know, Charles Dickens, not that cute. I looked it no, up. No, that's true. He's freakish. <laughs> Have you seen his hair? I know, exactly. It's like a rat's nest exploded over there. Yeah, that's not funny. Not cute at all. Yeah. I don't really get that. So uh, uh, did you uh, see any of the people who are working on defending the wildlife down there? No, they? not directly, but friends of friends friends and uh yeah there was a good article in the bitter southerner about it maybe we should talk to to the author of that article yeah send me it i will do that thank you uh for those of you listening on wnur right now chicago sound experiment or for those who listen to the live stream or podcast monday through wednesday at this is hell.com after speaking with brian Muir earlier this week we were supposed to talk to past guest rebecca gordon about her new tom dispatch article american exceptionalism on full display why this country might want to lower its expectations for those of you who are critical and rightly so of the russian invasion and occupation of ukraine it's a reminder that the united states refuses to sign on to the international criminal court which is trying to continue the job of the Nuremberg jurists who prosecuted Nazi war crimes shortly after World War II. The U.S. is more than happy to make claims of war crimes against those from other nations, but refuses to hold their own up to the same standard set at Nuremberg, a standard that was set by the United States, the U.K., France, and Russia. Yep, the U.S. will not live up to what it claims are its own rule of law standards when it comes to war crimes. Which is not to say we should be uncritical of Russian war crimes, but to say that the U.S. stance on not holding their own accountable for war crimes puts the government in a difficult position when condemning others of their alleged atrocities. And to the rest of the world, maybe not here in the United States, but to the rest of the world, it shows. It's pretty damn obvious. But instead of speaking with Rebecca yesterday, I woke up with some kind of illness, some sort of bug that kept me from leaving my house and coming over here to do the show. And I know that at the end of last week's show, I resolved to not talk about my health in 2023 with the hope that I would not have anything to complain about health-wise this year. So my apologies, but I am not taking any chances when it comes to issues with my digestive system after all the hell I went through last year. So as I could not be here, we instead shared our 2016 interview with Rebecca Gordon about her book, American Nuremberg, the U.S. officials who should stand trial for post 9-11 war crimes, which was chosen by listeners as one of their favorite books to be featured on the show in 2016. So I'm feeling much better. I have no idea why I was sick yesterday morning, and I'm hoping it was not from the fantastic new barbecue place my unwife and I found this past weekend. But potentially bad barbecue aside, Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what advice that's good for your and the planet's health are you insisting is an, infring- an infringement upon your rights? Do you have an answer yet, or are you working on one? Are you I crafting like, one at this uh, moment? People are always advising that I get a job, <laughs> but that's an infringement on my rights. <laughs> your rights to buy lottery tickets? Just to have a good time. <laughs> that's a good point, too. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer as well as the This Is Held Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive, featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisisheld.com and clicking on support. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you 
for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us, or you can email it to us at thisishellradio at gmail.com. That's the address you have to use during our last hour of this week's show. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, this week we're making sure everyone knows that we are looking for people to join our I still can't come up with the right word for it. Cadre sounds cool, but too commie. Besides, we're not all trained in a specific profession, which is great, but that is the actual definition of a cadre, people who are all uh, trained in specific professions. Let's see. Posse sounds, again, like we're trying too hard. Band is just annoying. Outfit and mob have already been taken, and... We don't want any trouble. Anyway, if you want to be a producer here on This Is Hell and run the board while contributing on air, as Sebastian has done, as has Alex, and as as will Lindsay, Dan, and Richard moving forward, or if you want to help with the show remotely, email us at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. Earlier this week, we shared an email we got from Jeff C., who expressed some interest. We also heard from Stephen F., who writes simply, Hey, Chuck, what kind of help do you need that can be done remotely? If I have the needed skills and time, I'd be happy to volunteer. Best, Steve. Wow, volunteer. You know, when it comes to remote work, Steve F. and everyone else who is interested, we are looking for people who can help update our current website to add more shows from our 26-year-plus Uh, long catalog of shows. One of the things we will be doing next week while we are playing uh, the Lost Early Pandemic episodes of This Is Hell is figure out that kind of stuff. And we'll be telling you you more about the Lost Pandemic tapes from This Is Hell in just a little bit. That's why we are reaching out now so we can move forward as soon as possible. As for actual in-person work, if you want to be a board operator and produce shows, you would need to be here at least one day a week. That's it, just one day a week at 9.30 in the morning with shifts including posting and editing of the shows lasting two and a half to three hours. We are located above Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood at 2251 West Devon Avenue, D-E-V-O-N, directly west of Loyola University, south of Northwestern and east of Northeastern. If you are interested, uh, do what Jeff's and Steve F. have done and email me at chuck at com and tell me if you are interested in doing some remote work for the show or actually being here physically in person at our studio. We also got an email from Tom G. who always sends exceptional guest ideas. Tom writes, hi Chuck, hi Alex, nice to see you at Carrie's last night, Chuck. And before I continue with uh, Tom's email, thanks to everyone who showed up last Wednesday during This Is Hell office hours, our meet and greet that's really a drink and think. Well, we're looking forward to seeing all of you this weekend is, or this evening as well, Wednesday night, at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue for This Is Hell office hours, which happened from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Uh, thanks last week goes out to Tom, Brian, Dave, Wally, John, Tommy, Mindy, Dennis, Jordan, Elliot, uh, David, Leo, and as Tom mentioned, Alex. And thanks to everyone I may be forgetting at this moment because, as usual, I had far too much fun during office hours. But getting back to Tom G's uh, guest suggestion, this he, he shares a link to an article about liberation theology. And uh, Tom says that he mentioned it to me at office hours. He writes that, He doesn't know if the author of the article, Leo Guardado, professor of theology at Fordham University, would make a good interview for this cell, but you can decide for yourself. Maybe there is someone else who would be a better interview on the topic since this is the 50th anniversary of the seminal book 
on liberation theology. Tom then sends a link to an article at The Conversation titled, After 50 Years, Liberation Theology is Still Reshaping Catholicism and Politics. But what is it? Tom then offers this snippet from the piece. It writes, or it states, it isn't often that theology makes headlines, but for the past 50 years, a way of thinking about God and poverty has been doing just that, liberation theology. Liberation theology's approach to living out Christian faith has been both globally influential and bitterly controversial. It has been investigated by the CIA on suspicion of promoting social unrest and inquisitioned by a former pope who accused it of getting too close to Marxist thought. It's even inspired conspiracy theories. Critics have dismissed it as naive, but also called it a threat to free market capitalism. Fifty years have passed since the landmark publication of the book most associated with liberation theology, A Theology of Liberation, by a Peruvian priest named Gustavo Gutierrez. Gutierrez, whose most recent manuscript I'm helping to edit, the writer states, published the book in Spanish in 1971 and then again in English in 73. With its emphasis on the liberation of oppressed people, especially the poor, this book helps reconfigure many Catholics' ways of thinking about the relationship between faith and justice. As a theologian who grew up during the Civil War in El Salvador, the writer states, I emphasize to my university students that it is impossible to grasp the beating heart of this theology without paying attention to the poverty and legacies of colonialism in Latin America. So thanks again, Tom. And the author of the article on liberation theology theology is on our list because it's something that's only come up a few times on the show. And I think it was the focus of only one conversation here on This Is Hell, despite having a huge impact on me and many of our guests, especially those who worked around the anti-Iraq war movement back at the turn of the century. Also, Tom, I owe you an apology. During office hours last week at Carrie's Lounge, again, which happened every Wednesday starting around 6 and going until somewhere around 10. Tom asked how many of his guest suggestions have actually ended up on air, and I I made a horrible estimate of about a a half dozen. Tom, I truly appreciate all of your suggestions, and I think we have had at least least 15 of your recommendations on the show, maybe as many as two dozen. Who knows? So thanks, Tom, and uh, we really appreciate you sending your ideas. They're always really appreciated, as are all the guest or topic tips sent by each and every one of our listeners. And you can send your suggestions to this is hell, or Chuck at thisishell.com. And if you do, we'll likely share your suggestion on air. And if we have your guest on the uh, show, then we'll thank you during that interview. Coming up, we'll have This Week in Rotten History. Dan will be sharing more of... Oh, no, we're not going to have This Week in Rotten History. Lindsay did that yesterday. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We will also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Jeff will be delivering this week's moment of truth. And we will tell you what's happening next week here on This Is Hell. Very special week here on This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. Yes, this is hell. Big Pharma insists they need sky-high drug prices in order to afford all their amazing innovations, like the COVID-19 vaccine. But what if most of those profits were not going into research and development? We're not going into innovation, but we're going elsewhere. What if instead of paying for R&D, a good portion of 
which was being paid for with public money anyway, what if those profits were going more so to stock buybacks, benefiting shareholders and executives, and those profits were funding congressional lobbying at only slightly less of a rate than they were funding innovation? Here to answer all of those what-ifs and a lot more, reporter at The Lever, thelever.com. Julia Rock joins us to discuss her article, How Big Pharma Actually Spends Its Massive Profits. Julia is a public records requester and researcher. Her most recent writing is a story headline, Corporations Are Pushing the Supreme Court to Crush Unions. You can follow Julia on Twitter, at Julia Rock, but replace the I with the number one. And you can send her tips at jrock at levernews.com. Welcome to This Is Hell, Julia. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for being on the show because this is, uh, there's aspects of the story that we have discussed before, but we have not discussed it in this exact uh, in-depth way in the past because it's usually just about how the public pays for innovation, and that's pretty much the end of the story. But your story does a lot more than just that. You report pharmaceutical giants rang in the new year by quietly announcing price hikes in the United States on research um, uh, for more than uh, 350 drugs, and they continue to insist these price hikes are necessary for innovation. But new research shows that the business model of America's largest pharmaceutical companies involves far more spending on enriching shareholders and executives than on research and development. So does the pharmaceutical industry spend more money on enriching themselves than they spend on actually developing new drugs? And is that any different than any other player in capitalism? Is that unique to capitalism? Do Do companies usually spend more money on making money? than on new or improved products? Well, the, these are a lot of big questions, but but to start with pharma, uh, yeah, I was looking at a study which found that the industry, I think that you know the 14 biggest companies in the industry spent far more on returning money to investors, shareholders, um, than they did on on research and development. And 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 you know, part of that, as you've noted in, in the introduction, is that the the executives who are sort of making decisions about how much money to return to investors um, rather than invest in in research and manufacturing are are themselves um, you know enriched by by stock buybacks and dividends. So it, uh, between the the period that the study looked at, uh, 2012 and 2021, um, far more money, uh, 747 billion dollars was spent on buybacks and dividends than on research and development. So is that unique in capitalism to have corporations like uh, here we have in big pharma not reinvesting in their own company, only investing in profits? Is that unique? Because if if that is not unique, if that is something that's if that's something that's happening across economic sectors, then our future doesn't look great for innovation. Yeah, I mean, this is something that is absolutely happening in other sectors and, you know, has been a trend over the past few decades whereby companies, you know, aren't aren't investing most of their money um, in in making things, but but investing it, you know, back in in their shareholders. I, I would say what sort of stands out about the pharmaceutical industry and and increasingly is is sort of coming up in other industries is that 
pharma companies have long said, you know, we need to cut people off from access to life-saving drugs via high prices because it's funding research and development. And, and so these numbers are just far more striking in an industry where, where, you know, the companies have justified high prices that again are leaving people, you know, without access in some cases to life-saving drugs. Um, you know, they've they've justified them by saying, you know, they, they will fund more drugs. And that's why these numbers are so striking. And it just makes me think that in the short term, sure, this will lead to a whole bunch of profits. But in the long term, it would seem unsustainable for providing the services that these sectors would be providing. In pharmaceuticals, it would suggest that, you know, in the short term, yes, people are getting rich off of this. Yes, shareholders are making money off of this. But in the long term, we aren't going to have a sustainable, uh, healthy public health system, a system that can actually uh, protect us from a potential new variant or a potential new pandemic. So what do you think this says about the future that we have looking forward to us and when we aren't reinvesting back in our own industries that we depend upon for the goods and services that we use in our everyday lives? I mean, yeah, it, uh, as we've sort of seen over the the past few years with with the supply chain crisis, um, you know, not not investing in infrastructure, whether it's you know um, the shipping industry or pharmaceuticals, has has massive consequences um, down the road. You you had also made the point, you know, that the government is already uh, sort of massively investing in new drugs. We obviously saw this with. The COVID vaccines, um, and 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 so there is sort of an extent to which you know public public sector investment can sort of solve a lot of these problems of of sort of directing money towards drugs that are necessary and that are that are going to save lives. But sort of if that's the case, if these drugs are going to be sort of massively subsidized by the government, then it sort of raises questions about why these executives and investors are still being allowed to you know enrich themselves with with the profits from these drugs. And as you pointed out earlier, and you write in your article, between 2012 and 2021, the 14 largest publicly traded pharmaceutical companies spent $747 billion on stock buybacks and dividends, substantially more than the $660 billion they spent on research and development, according to a new study by economist William Lazonic, professor emeritus of economics at University of Massachusetts, and Ener Tullum, a researcher at Brown University. These numbers, again, begin in 20, uh, 2012. On March 23, 2010, a couple of years earlier, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, went into place. Do we have any idea of Obamacare's impact on the way in which pharmaceutical companies spend more on shareholder buybacks than they do on innovation? I mean that that that's an interesting question and 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 wasn't something that this study looked at although um you know I will say again sort of th- this trend of of companies you know not 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 reinvesting in research and manufacturing isn't limited to pharma and you know one thing that really stands out in this study is that um th- there was sort of a trend at least over the the first few years that that the study looked at where basically the business model of big pharmaceutical companies wasn't to do their own, you know, research and development, but was to find smaller firms that had, um, you know, come up with new innovative drugs by them, 
um, you know, get every dollar they could out of the patents they had and then use the profits to to enrich shareholders and executives. So I think it was already a trend within the industry, you know, when Obamacare passed that that bigger firms were sort of uh, buying up smaller firms, consolidating and using their um, patents to juice their own profits. But of course, you know, there, there's been a, a legislative development in the past a uh, couple of years in which the Democrats have finally passed a measure to allow Medicare to negotiate um, drug prices, which could and 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 should um, um, sort of Im- impact some of these trends. Although the 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 measure that de- Democrats passed was um, you know pretty pretty watered down after a, a lot of pharmaceutical industry lobbying. And we'll get to that negotiating with Medicare in a moment. I just find it very ironic that here you have these huge pharmaceutical firms and they're telling people that we need to raise drug prices in order for us to make innovations. And then smaller pharmaceutical firms are actually coming up with innovations and they just buy those firms up. Obviously, they don't need the amount of resources uh, that the big pharmaceuticals are claiming that they need or else these smaller firms wouldn't be able to come up with these innovations. They're just the smaller firms are, you know, prioritizing innovation. I just find that very ironic. You, You write of pharmaceutical companies spending more on stock buybacks than on actual research. That hasn't stopped drug companies and their lobbying groups from using the cost of innovation as a key argument in their campaign to keep Medicare from being able to negotiate lower drug prices. The pharmaceutical company has spent at least $645 million on federal lobbying over the past two years. So they've spent almost as much on lobbying as they have on innovation, it seems like, uh, to get the profits their shareholders want instead of uh, raising prices. They could have stopped spending so much on lobbying. Or is that the only way they get those profits from stock buybacks? Is that through lobbying? Is is the money that they put towards lobbying and the money they put towards stock buybacks, are they dependent upon one another? Uh, th- 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 this is a good question. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what um, the relationship there would be in terms of lobbying on on drug price negotiation. Um, I mean, I guess the 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 point there would be that you know the pharmaceutical industry does not want Medicare to be able to negotiate uh, lower drug prices because that will you know sort of decrease the the profits of these firms and and sort of therefore um, you know the amount of money they can return to their their executives and investors. I mean the the Part of the government where, you know, buybacks could be restricted would be at the Securities and Exchange Commission, which legalized, you know, stock buybacks back in 1982. And they could basically say, you know, enough is enough with firms uh, sort of returning all of their money to shareholders rather than, um, you know, investing them in, in you know, what the firms are actually supposed to do. We're going to crack down on stock buybacks. Uh, but the industry's lobbying has has mostly been focused on things like uh, drug price negotiations. As you just mentioned, stock buybacks, as you write, uh, stock buybacks whereby companies repurchase shares of their own stocks, reducing the number of shares available and increasing the value of remaining shares, were made legal by the Securities and Exchange Commission in 1982 and have been criticized by President Joe Biden and top congressional Democrats. So do stock buybacks do anything but raise stock value? Do they raise the value of the stock without adding any real value to the product the stock represents? 
Yeah, I mean, the the other way you'll sort of hear hear them referred to is just companies manipulating the prices of their own stock, which is which is basically what it is. There's not any um, and any sort of like real uh, explanation for what's happening besides the the one you gave. Like, there's no sort of yeah justification uh, that that is a little bit uh, more innocuous. <laughs> so why were stock uh, buybacks not legal? until 1982. What was the government concerned about when it came to stock buybacks? Well, so, so uh, the, the Reagan years at, at the SEC were sort of a huge um, shift in the way that the government regulated public companies because Reagan was very uh, sort of into the idea that that, that um, was becoming big at the time, which is that you know, shareholders, uh, the responsibility of companies is is to their shareholders. Um, and so, get, you know, given the explanation you, you just gave of stock buybacks, I think it's sort of clear why, um, you know, opening uh, the floodgates for for buybacks at the SEC would sort of play into this idea that that the company's responsibility is is to its investors, to its shareholders. So it doesn't have any real responsibility to the public or the impact it might have on the public. Do stock buybacks without improving the product they represent, do they raise the price for consumers and raise the profits for shareholders? Because within that framing, stock buybacks sound like nothing but a redistribution of wealth upward via the market without any product development. I mean that's that's certainly uh, one 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 argument against buybacks. I mean in 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 the case of of pharma here, um, it is clearly the case sort of that that companies investing more in new drugs in in research and developments would be good for um, consumers and 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 the public and that you know enriching investors um, with profits isn't you know helping anybody but but the investors so is there any talk of going back to nine pre-1982 times and making stock buybacks illegal again so there has been some discussion in Congress about uh, limit, limiting um, uh, stock buybacks, um, you know, legislatively. There was also, of course, in the Inflation Reduction Act, a uh, 1% tax on stock buybacks, um, uh, a, a new 1% excise on, on stock buybacks. Although sort of the argument about that is like, well, if you tax buybacks a little bit more, you know, just, just 1%, um, then, then companies will, will sort of just, just return more to investors through dividends. Like you're not really going to raise very much revenue and it's, it's not enough to sort of change the behavior of companies. So, so that probably wasn't, um, the best solution, but yes, there have been, uh, efforts legislative efforts in Congress to, you know, restrict buybacks or require more disclosure. Um, this is something that Schumer has has talked about, that Bernie Sanders has talked about. So it's definitely something, uh, you know, that that top Democrats are critical of, but but nothing um, has really, you know, happened on that front in, in this Congress. So if there were no stock buybacks, if we went back to the pre-1982 days, how do you think the economy and our society may look different? Do stock buybacks, say, play a role in you know other ancillary issues that we have, like growing inequality? 
I mean, I'm 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 no economist, but it's sort of impossible to imagine that it 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 wouldn't be a really drastic impact. I do think you know stock buybacks again are sort of part of this this uh, bigger legal infrastructure in which you know corporations are sort of allowed to. Um, make their focus uh uh you know returning money to to shareholders and not not uh reinvesting in the public but yeah i mean obviously banning stock buybacks would would um be transformative and you know one thing that that this economist uh william lozonic who who has long sort of uh been a critic of buybacks talks about is that he thinks you know if you if you massively restricted stock buybacks we would you know immediately see the impacts um in in the stock prices of these these public companies which have been you know basically manipulated uh through them you know buying up shares of of their own um company so in your opinion is there something uniquely wrong about pharmaceutical companies doing the same thing when it comes to stock buybacks that other industry, other uh, members of the economic sector uh, do. When it comes to pharmaceuticals, how bad are stock buybacks for our health? How bad are there, is profit seeking for public health? I mean, I think the takeaway from from this study is perhaps more that, you know, when pharma, which is the the pharmaceutical industry lobbying group, one of the most powerful in Washington says, you know, again and again, if if Medicare can negotiate drug prices, if you cut drug prices, we are going to stop making like really important life-saving drugs. As that claim, I think, has already um, been been sort of scrutinized that like nobody should be listening to that. I mean, they have like this research shows, I think, that there's sort of no reason to take that claim from pharma um, at face value or even to sort of look look for any truth in it because the companies have just not been acting in a way that suggests that, you know, they need these really high drug prices to do research and development. And But also the pharmaceutical companies are pointing out that, look, we had this great innovation with COVID-19 vaccines. So if you take away our fund, if you don't allow us to raise prices, who knows? We might not be able to have some sort of vaccine for the next variant or the next pandemic. Do stock buybacks make the public any more or less vulnerable during times of crisis, what do stock buybacks mean for a world that is facing increasing climate change, zoonotic pandemics linked to deforestation, industrial agriculture, and globalization, none of which is going away soon? What do stock buybacks uh, mean for our vulnerability when it comes to pandemics and climate crises? I think they mean, you know, that the pharmaceutical industry as it exists right now is not going to save us. <laughs> That's a very, a very concise way of saying it. So our, our uh, price increases are following the, following the beginning of a crisis is the definition of price gouging. Are stock buybacks a form of price gouging, a way to have an exorbitant price, an unreasonable price that is not guided by good sense, which again is the definition of exorbitant. Do you think that this is a form of price gouging, whether it's in the pharmaceutical industry or any industry? I mean, I'm I'm not sure I would describe it as price gouging, um, so much as an explanation of what, you know, our high prices are subsidizing. Um, and, you know, in this case, I think what it shows is that when you pay 
high prices for drugs or when you can't afford a drug because it's too expensive, uh, you know, some already very rich person is getting richer from that. Uh, and and so in that way, it's maybe um, a form of price gouging, or at least that's that's sort of the relationship that this, this has to prices. So are prices increasing in the pharma, pharmaceutical sector far faster than they are in other sectors? And as the pandemic of COVID continues and AIDS still kills between half a million and 900,000 people worldwide every year, with innovations being made in drugs for both diseases, shouldn't? Drug companies be experiencing record high profits via price hikes as demand skyrockets? I mean, what's wrong with drug companies raking in profits when they are called on during times of crises? I mean, that, that's that's sort of a, a political question. I think the, the problem with any industry uh, raking in a lot of profits is just that there's already sort of massive wealth inequality. And this is, as you pointed out earlier, basically, you know, another upward transfer of wealth. But yeah, if the question is, you know, should the pharmaceutical industry be constituted by companies that, you know, create something that is good for the public, like affordable, you know, life-saving treatments and drugs, then I think as we we know, that's not really what's, what's happening right now. And uh, profits and you know, money being returned to shareholders is a huge part of that story. We are speaking with Julia Rock, a reporter at The Lever, thelever.com, who joins us to discuss her article, How Big Pharma Actually Spends Its Massive Profits. You can follow Julia on Twitter at Julia Rock. Just replace the I with the number one. And you can send her tips at jrock at levernews.com. You write that Democrats have campaigned on allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices with pharmaceutical companies as health programs in most other high-income countries do since at least 2006. So other high-income countries, they do the exact same thing that we, you know, that many people want Medicare to be able to do here in the United States, and that would lower the prices here in the U.S. Is opposition to Medicare negotiating with pharmaceutical companies is that in any way a partisan issue? And has it always been? Is one of the reasons that this was in place, that this did have at one time bipartisan support to not allow Medicare to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies? So in in the past Congress, uh, Medicare negotiating drug prices basically was a partisan issue. You know, the Democrats, most Democrats were supporting it. Of course, you know, it was a couple of Senate Democrats who helped the pharmaceutical industry water down um, their proposed measure. But yes, in in, in this Congress, it was, uh, you know, basically, or, or in the in the previous Congress, uh, it was it it was basically a partisan issue. So you also mentioned that the U.S. is an outlier on this issue when it comes to negotiating drug prices with a national health care agency. And it's why drug companies have, according to a report by House Democrats, quote, targeted the United States for price increases for many years while maintaining or cutting prices in the rest of the world. So how dependent is the pharmaceutical industry overall on high prices in the United States? What happens to the global pharmaceutical industry if Medicare starts negotiating lower prices? Would that have be detrimental in any way to the innovation and production of new pharmaceutical drugs globally? 
I mean, yeah, it's certainly an interesting question. Like if, you know, Americans are paying higher drug prices so that, you know, drugs can be cheaper in other countries, is that such a bad thing? Although I think, you know, as we've been talking about, there's not really great evidence that sky high drug prices in the U.S. are, you know, funding really good, um, you know, research and and development from drug companies, sort of instead that money is is uh the 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 profits that that drug companies are taking in is is being used to sort of enrich the people invested in the companies so i would i would find that to be a very um dubious claim from the industry so is the bigger problem uh, than the inability of medicare to nego- negotiate as you were talking about earlier how these huge pharmaceutical companies will buy up smaller firms is the lack of competition within pharmaceuticals, is that also driving up the price when it comes to uh, drugs? Because it seems like there are, from reading your article, there are many, many factors that are all about profit-seeking that seem to be driving up the price of drugs here in the United States. Yes, there are There are a lot of different factors um, sort of making making this industry the way it is. Well, and 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 you know there's the lack of competition that you point out from consolidation within the industry, but of course this is also an industry with basically a government granted monopoly in the form of patents. Um and so one one of the reasons yet yeah, is so important for Medicare to be able to negotiate drug prices uh is that pr- prices are not sort of being um driven down with a lot of drugs by sort of competition as economists would 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 like us to think um would sort of bring us to to the correct prices um and and so instead uh these companies are are allowed to use basically their natural monopolies with um um patents uh to just charge obscene prices for drugs and and so that is part of the reason it's it's important for medicare to be able to negotiate of course it's also just a common sense thing like if you know medicare is paying companies for drugs it's sort of crazy that they would just have to take the price that the companies are offering that's really interesting your point about how uh, we need to it's important for medicare to be able to negotiate because of the increasing power and consolidation of the pharmaceutical industry uh, you uh, then write of the measure to lower drug prices through negotiations with medicare the pharmaceutical industry and its lobbying groups responded with a full force pressure campaign against the legislation and you quote the president and ceo of pharmaceutical research and manufacturers of america washington's top drug lobby saying, if passed, the measure measure will upend the same innovative ecosystem that brought us life-saving vaccines and therapies to combat COVID-19. If Medicare was negotiating drug prices at the time in January of 2020, how would have that affected the ability for a vaccine to be developed? Is there any kind of evidence that would suggest that if Medicare was not a, was able to negotiate drug prices, we would not have gotten the COVID-19 vaccine as quickly as we did? No, there's, yeah, maybe a rhetorical question, but no, of course, there's no evidence to suggest that. You know, what's funny is that the government did um, negotiate the price of those vaccines, as well as, as you pointed out, uh, sort of spend years investing in in research that that uh, laid the groundwork for these vaccines to be able to develop in the first place. 
So you also uh, quote the president and CEO of Washington's top drug lobby saying, and I'm glad that you do because it gives the perspective of the industry side, uh, saying that under the guise of negotiation, it gives the government the power to dictate how much a medicine is worth and leaves many patients facing a future with less access to medicines and fewer new treatments. Would the government, would Medicare, have complete control over what prices would be for pharmaceuticals, as is implied in the term dictate? Is that the way it works in other countries where their national health care systems negotiate drug prices with pharmaceutical companies? Do they dictate the prices with pharmaceutical companies? Uh, no, I don't think that um, <laughs> negotiation of prices, you know, out, outside of how the pharmaceutical industry sees it or, or claims it works could be called, um, you know, dictating prices. Uh, in in the case of, you know, the most recent legislation passed in the U.S., the drug price negotiations don't actually begin until 2026, and it's it's up to the federal government um, to sort of come up with with uh, rulemaking to figure out what the structure of, of of those negotiations will be. But you also point out that last summer, after a year and a half of pharmaceutical industry lobbying and campaign spending, Democrats passed a massively watered down measure that will only let Medicare negotiate prices on a handful of older drugs that no longer have patent exclusivity. Had those drug prices already dropped due to that lack of patent exclusivity? Did that legislation only lower the price or allow for negotiation on uh, prices of already cheap or depressed prices drugs? I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think the aim is that the the government will be able to choose some uh, of of the more expensive drugs, which which constitute sort of a, a a larger portion of spending on drugs and negotiate those. But yes, it does exclude um, newer drugs that have, you know, just 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 come onto the market from negotiations. All I can imagine is, because I heard it so much in the run-up to the 2022 midterm elections, Republicans and Democratic Democrats alike saying, I helped reduce prices on Medicare drugs. And all I can think of is, it was this really watered-down bill that isn't really in effect in certain ways. You also point out that Republicans now in charge of the House of Representatives have their sights set on repealing the measure before price negotiations start in 2026, as you were just mentioning. Meanwhile, Biden could use his existing regulatory authority to lower drug prices before then, but has so far declined to do so. So can any president lower drug prices whenever they want through the existing regulatory authority of the president's office? Because that would seem like a no-brainer. Like, I would do that immediately upon entering office, whether I was a Republican or Democrat, because you're going to get a lot of support, especially from old people, old people who freaking vote. So why wouldn't just any president drop the prices of skyrocketing uh, drugs, skyrocketing drug prices, when they have the existing regulatory authority of the president's office to lower those prices? Well, so so for one, uh, as we've been talking about, the the pharma industry lobby is quite quite powerful. But yeah, the the one of the authorities uh, we're referring to in this piece is is sort of the authority of the president to use march in rights um, to manufacture drugs, and 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 basically what that entails um, is the the government deciding that um a uh, a patented product you know is not a patented drug is is uh not being um you know adequately produced and and sort of stepping in and saying like you are abusing this patent 
And and so we are going to uh, manufacture this drug. And this is something that Biden has been under pressure to do uh, from lawmakers like Elizabeth Warren, um, but but just so far uh, hasn't done. Just a few more questions for you. You write most pharmaceutical research doesn't introduce novel therapies, but instead modifies existing drugs to expand their purview to new patents, further bolstering drug company profits. So producing new drugs is not what the pharmaceutical industry does. How ill-equipped is the pharmaceutical business model, if you will, in creating new drugs when they are needed, like they were with COVID. After all, we are told it was a miracle that in less than a year, we had a COVID vaccine, which was first released on December 11th of 2020, around a year after the first reports of what would later be known as COVID-19 in Wuhan, China. Was it a miracle for an industry that normally is not geared to, nor does it produce many new drugs, or is the COVID-19 vaccine just yet another existing drug simply remodified by the industry. The COVID vaccine is certainly a, a, a novel uh, therapy. Uh, what 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 that part of the story uh, was just referring to is the fact that you know when, when the industry says oh you know fewer drugs are going to come come onto the market look at this study uh, that says you know two fewer drugs will come onto the market over the next ten years if 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 Medicare negotiates drug prices which is what what one study said you know it's not like every new drug that comes onto the market is a COVID. Uh, vaccine level innovation. Oftentimes it is, you know, as you said, just just a slight modification of some some existing therapy, which isn't, uh, you know, producing some massive good good for the public, um, but is sort of giving giving the drug company another patent that they can uh, juice. Do you believe that here in the United States, drug prices will just keep going up in a way that far outpaces drug prices in other countries? as long as Medicare does not have the ability to negotiate drug prices as national health agencies are allowed to do in other nations around the world? Will we just keep seeing drug prices going up until Medicare can negotiate with pharmaceutical companies? Well, well. so I think it, it remains to be seen, you know, what the impact of the the recently passed measure allowing Medicare to negotiate the price of some drugs will be. Um, but yes, I think, you know, it's, it's certainly an industry where, where without sort of any, any restrictions on, on, you know, how, how their money is spent and, and how prices are set seems to be willing to just increase and increase and increase, uh, prices. Why do you think we tolerate such high prices here in the United States as uh, consumers of pharmaceutical drugs? Why do we put up with it when it seems like in other countries that we don't? Is there a sense here in the United States that there's nothing you can do about it, that it's completely out of your control to stop the ri rising prices of uh, pharmaceuticals? And is there anything we can do about it as consumers? Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh... You know why do we put up with it? I uh, I I don't know if uh, you know the public is sort of putting putting up with it uh, by by choice, but you know as has been the story um, in over the past couple of decades, you know the Democrats have campaigned on on giving Medicare this power, and people have elected them on that promise, and then you know under basically massive attack from the pharmaceutical industry which i think i i just can't overstate sort of how how powerful and well funded and aggressive their lobbying operations are you know it it doesn't get done um 
So, you know, it's remarkable that at least some some version of Medicare drug price negotiation was accomplished last year, but but there's still a lot to be done in in the way of implementation and sort of making sure the Republicans don't repeal the measure before it even goes into effect. How much do you fear that politicians will say or that the public will have this idea that the issue's already been addressed, that there's nothing else that we can do. And look what happened with McCain-Feingold. Everybody thought that that was going to be real campaign reform. And after that campaign reform was released and it didn't really turn into any kind of campaign election financing reform, uh, we never went back to that issue. Do you? How much do you fear that we're not going to go back to the issue of Medicare being able to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies because people will think of it as already being addressed? I mean, I don't I don't think it's the type of issue, you know, where where uh, people will sort of lose lose interest in it or or believe it's been addressed if it hasn't, because, you know, of course, uh, you know, people are are the ones who who have to pay these prices for drugs and 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 sort of notice it, um, you know, in, in their pocketbooks or notice when they can't notice uh, can't afford it or or or, you know, sort of are struggling to cover high costs for family members. So I don't really think it's the type of issue that can just sort of fall to the wayside. Um, but, you know, how much people can can organize uh, and, and sort of accomplish uh, greater reforms is sort of a separate question. You know, one of the things that really bugged me, I'm sorry, I still have one last question for you, but one of the things that, uh, one, one more after this, one of the things that really bugged me about the whole Medicare for all campaign was that I, I know from personal experience that Medicare doesn't pay for saying you getting a tooth filled and it doesn't pay for x-rays and it doesn't pay for CT scans. It doesn't pay for a lot of things. So in the Medicare for all plan, all those things were going to be addressed once we have Medicare for all. But in the meantime, the people who are, you know, within the groups that desperately need some some sort of medical coverage, they never got the reforms that they needed for, say, taking care of cavities or taking care of x-rays and CT scans. Why do you think a Medicare for all idea was in, in a great idea? Don't get me wrong. But why do you think that it still was like, we'll, 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 we'll fix Medicare, but we'll only fix Medicare if it's for everybody. If it's just for the marginalized, we're not going to fix Medicare. Why do you think that was the case? Because that really bugged me. Yeah, sorry. You're, you're, you're saying there, there's sort of no inter, intermediate, intermediate uh, proposal to reform Medicare. Exactly. Sort of on, on the way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I I <laughs> I I think I'd agree with you that that uh, doesn't seem right, um, and I I don't know enough about sort of the the choices that that uh, Medicare for all advocates have made uh, to to sort of comment on why that happened. <laughs> okay, one last question for you. It's just something that popped into my head. We've, we've been talking about Medicare. We've been speaking with Julia Rock, who is a reporter at the Lever. Check out thelever.com. She joined us to discuss her article: How Big Pharma Actually Spends Its Massive profits. Her most recent writing is a story headline, Corporations Are Pushing the Supreme Court to Crush Unions. You can follow Julia on Twitter at Julia Rock, replace the I with the number one, and you can send her tips at jrocketlevernews.com. One last question for you, Julia, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise, it's called the question from hell. It's the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. If corporations are inflating stock values to enrich themselves while raising prices on their products, and corporations are working, as you point out in your most recent writing, with the Supreme Court to crush unions, thus eliminating a way in which workers can get improved pay and benefits, 
why are there any fans of corporations in the United States? Why are there executives lionized when they profit from the suffering and misery of others and they do it openly? Why do you think corporations still have an incredible amount of support and following here in the United States, despite them trying to do everything they can to raise prices and lower wages on the working public? I mean, my response to that would be that their their approval ratings are falling and public support for unions is is rising. Um, so so maybe the the sort of cop out answer is that might not be the case for long. Uh, but but you know, in 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 the case of the pharmaceutical industry, the these are the companies that that at the end of the day have have provided us um, with with life saving treatments, and it's very sort of hard to disentangle something like the COVID vaccine. Um, which, you know, again, uh, government funded, government subsidized, um, you know, now the the the, uh, the companies like Moderna and Pfizer are jacking up prices on it. There's lots of evil stuff happening. Access has been restricted all around the world to these vaccines, you know, and yet many, many of us uh, went in, got a vaccine and, and um, you know, m- maybe it saved our lives. So I think it's 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 sort of a, a difficult to hold those two things in in our head at the same time. And it's also difficult because we're constantly thinking of them as the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, which gives all of the responsibility for uh, creating the vaccine to the company and doesn't uh, mention all of the other public funding that went into it. Uh, Julia, I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, we just found out about the lever of the last few weeks, and uh, you're doing fantastic work over there. Thank you so much for being on our show, and uh, enjoy your upcoming weekend. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If what you just heard from Julia Rock on Big Pharma funding stock buybacks more than they do innovation, about Big Pharma funding research and development only slightly more than what they do on congressional lobbyists, which explains the high price of drugs in the United States, if that made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what advice that's good for your and the planet's health are you insisting is an infringement upon your rights? Over Twitter way, we have two responses. Edison K says, I continue to scream, all gods are bastards at various oceans, storm clouds, and dormant volcanoes whereas sandwich man a replies you will have to pry my six thousand square feet house filled with sports and recreation equipment i never use and mega screen tvs in every room i do use from my cold dead hands but first you will have to pry out the potato chips and soda pop that's what's going on over at twitter there you go so uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is how swag you want you can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can still get your answer to this week's question from hell under the wire by emailing us thisishellradio at gmail.com, by posting it to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or direct messaging it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Again, we must have your answer now. 
by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff, I don't even know what he does. I don't know. I don't know. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, as I said, please subscribe to our Patreon podcast, patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber and uh, you get access to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, and that's which streams weekly and is podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. On this week's Patreon, I may have what I plan on doing tomorrow. I may have done it before. It's hard to tell. Like many of you who have had COVID and many of you who have not, I do suffer from some level of COVID haze. Some call it brain fog, poor concentration, feeling confused, thinking more slowly than usual during and sometimes after having COVID. A study in March of last year published by a group of German researchers suggests that even people who don't notice signs of cognitive impairment can have problems with memory and attention after recovering from a mild case of COVID-19. But those of us who have not even had the that mild case of COVID have explained to me how the event of the pandemic itself, not even the infection from the disease, and the way we responded to it individually and collectively made the time before the pandemic seem like a different time, a distant memory. Even after only a few weeks of living with the virus, we all of a sudden were looking back to pre-pandemic times as something that would never return again. So I'm not 100% certain, but I'm pretty sure I've not looked back at that time just prior to the pandemic on Patreon, which is difficult to remember both physically and emotionally that whole time before the pandemic. I mean, where were you in the summer of 2019? What were your biggest concerns? What were your even tentative plans for the future? And once we did lock ourselves away from one another, how did that affect the relationship with the person or people you were with before and then locked down with during the pandemic? So next week, we are playing This Is Hell, the lost early pandemic tapes Uh, featuring interviews that never made it on air at our home station, WNUR, because Northwestern University's campus, where the station is located, was on complete lockdown for the first several months of of the pandemic. And it made me think about that time before uh, and right when the virus made landfall in the United States. And I'll be reflecting back on that time on Patreon tomorrow. Also on Patreon, we are sharing an interview we did 16 years ago, back on January 13th of 2007, when we spoke with Salim Loney, a former spokesperson for the UN mission in Iraq and a columnist for the Daily Nation in Kenya, which neighbors Somalia. Loney's articles just published at the time included In Somalia, a Reckless U.S. Proxy War, which was uh, posted in the International Herald Tribune, and Destabilizing the Horn, which was posted at The Nation. Yep, less than five and a half years after the beginning of the Forever War, we had guests on the show saying how the war on terror would lead to less global stability and security, not more, and that's exactly what happened. But the only way you can hear my reflections on the days just prior to and the first days of the pandemic, as well as how the U.S. was destabilizing the Horn of Africa with the war on terror, the only way you can hear all of that is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 350 past Patreon podcasts. It's like 
two additional years of This Is Hell with each and every one featuring a new monologue by me and a classic interview that currently is not available anywhere else online. That's patreon.com slash thisishell. Please tell your friends. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner. And we'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. But as you know, it's going to be the lost early pandemic interviews and episodes of This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Propaganda from the spring-breaking dawn of civilization. I have my world-builder hat on and my world-builder gloves and boots. Of course, can't forget my world-builder safety goggles. I hastily contrive a fertile crescent from what's lying around my mind. Rolling hills of green, a forest of cedar trees, a couple of rivers that will one day be called the Euphrates and the Tigris. I'm going to say it's about 8,000 years ago before the marking up of a lot of clay tablets with stories. There's not a great deal materially left from that time that could refute me. It was an oral culture. But before the advent of most of the oral traditions that were later recorded and most likely adulterated in more tangible fashion, so long ago, so long ago, people had only in the previous 4,000 years even come to sense themselves as distinct from all the other things in the world. Most of what people created were stories and songs and rhythms. Those items were constructed of vibrations. Almost as soon as they were appreciated, they would blow away in the wind like a sake cup of pure oxygen served as an amuse-bouche at an irrationally expensive trendy restaurant. Or a burp, but much more important than a quarter cup of gas because these vibrations were early strokes sculpting the kind of species we were going to become. I take it back, forget about the geographical location. This could happen anywhere. I'm gonna tell you a story now, and this is just between you and me and the invisible power of wishing. There once was a time when the vast majority of people were intelligent, contemplative, and respectful of each other, even of those less intelligent, contemplative, and able-bodied. Everything was so new. No systemic ideas of disdain, prohibition, or guilt had yet taken hold. No one knew what laziness was. All the labor, the tending of the wild growth from which food was gathered, the grinding of seeds into pastes and powders, the weaving of plant fibers, the caring for what domestic animals there were, all that took at most a couple of hours each day. The rest of the day was for finding out what being a human was all about, because However long people had been in existence, there were always freshly minted people coming into existence who barely knew what was going on around them or inside them and had yet to explore the nature of the relationships woven around and through them. They weren't savages. Most migrated rhythmically from a region of withering resources to where they knew from experience food was more plentiful in a given season. And as that plenty waned in its own season, they migrated back again. Some lived in collectively organized permanent citadels designed around a communal routine. From the midst of this idyllic 
imaginary past, a gang of veiny, muscly, scarified brutes emerged. The rest of serious society kept them to a limited area where their games of competitive violence wouldn't spatter their sportive spoom all over the endeavors of those engaged with the real world. They used to run around smashing things, including each other. They were young and stupid. They were intoxicated, as were most people at that time. They lived that way from puberty to early adulthood, when most of them tired of the lifestyle of the loud and obnoxious, at which point they would return from their spring break or rumspringa back to the greater world of cohabitation with nature, where the music and food were better and the life expectancy was greater. Over time, a lot of time, of movements started to take hold among the rumspring breakers. They started resenting the limits set by the collective, more egalitarian mass of people, all in harmony with their world. They started challenging their playground's boundaries. They crossed their prescribed limits and made raids on the people. There arose from among them a group they would call the leaders. They exerted powerful influence over the rest of the breakers. The leaders judged who the winners of imbecilic contests were. The entire ethos and epistemology of the breakers became an imbecilic contest. These leaders took stock of their fellow breakers and said, the breakers are the best. The breakers are the winners at being people. Then they took stock of themselves and said, we're the winners of the winners. We do the best. We deserve a larger share, not just of breaker wealth, but of all wealth as a prize for our winning. And much the way our artists in current times are told, artists are those who have kept the child alive in themselves. These leaders told the breakers in their Peter Pandering style, why should we grow up and behave calmly and reasonably like those stodgy adults? Let us keep the grabby, selfish, competitive infant in ourselves alive forever. Long live childhood. Eventually the breakers broke and entered the citadel enough times and carried off so much booty and spoils that a majority of resources, including the servitude of other humans and animals, became theirs to keep from everyone else, as once they themselves had been kept at a safe distance from the people. They imposed over time their grabbing, grandstanding, boasting, and hoarding values on everything and everyone they were able to dominate. The tables had turned. The leaders industry leaders, thought leaders, statesmen in the old gendered parlance, and be all that you can beers were now the center of attention, leaving the rest of the world desperately trying to keep their inner and outer children alive. And that was the beginning of civil division and accumulation, not an auspicious beginning. And it didn't happen all at once. The struggle between pastoral peasantry and the enclosing rulers was still going on in Shakespeare's time and continues to this day. There was a fable they used to tell long before it was tapped in cuneiform on clay tablets as a character arc inside the Epic of Gilgamesh. There's little doubt among scholars that the epic was a written codification of a much more ancient orally transmitted saga. And that epic, written to exalt the great king of a great city, a character named Enkidu appears. Enkidu is the wild man. Enkidu was a wild man from the cedar forest, the epic tells us. He never had him no schooling, nor learnt him the highfalutin ways of the city folk. He was a savage, but a noble one, noble in his heart, not on paper or papyrus or clay. He was 
mighty and brutish and closer to God and the natural world, but he was seduced by the convenience, protection, and dandiness of civilized life. And it was his loyalty to the great king of the great city that turned heaven against him and undid him. The wild man needs the values of the city to understand his purpose, but in losing his innocence, he grows unable to survive. Shakespeare had a couple versions of the wild man. At the beginning of his career, when he was still a relatively impoverished artist, he wrote King John. The wild man archetype in that play is called the bastard. His inner nobility is drawn out by witnessing the barbarity of war. In Shakespeare's later, more famous version of the wild man, Caliban, the figure suffers a worse fate. He's irredeemably outside civilization. He will not be tamed. He is accursed. But that was way at the end of the bard's career. It was written after the destruction of much of the peasant lifestyle, the lives of the people, via the enclosures of the commons that cemented the wealth of Shakespeare and others of the rentier class. The story is obviously malleable according to the needs of the propagandist, but we can invent our own version and call it a reconstruction of the original oral wild man trope. We can say that the wild man was off with the rum spring breakers, but got tired of it and decided it was time to come back to the harmonious family of plants and creatures and people. And though it was at first difficult to curb the selfish thug behavior he'd practiced for over a decade and a half, he came to understand the reciprocity and sustainability of communal life. It was a simple maturation process, not an abdication of nature or a bargain of the soul. The wild man was wild by choice, and then he grew up. He needed, we need to propagate this story of the self-taming of the wild man. Passing through a maturation process is what our rumspring-broken global civilization needs desperately and in a big hurry. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. So who's dying there behind you? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a noisy day at the <laughs> construction site that is my home. <laughs> That's awesome. What, so what's, the, new, what's new by you? What's new by me? Oh, did you, oh you were talking about, what do you call it? Uh, liberation theology. Yeah. And... Uh, I uh, studied with the father of liberation theology, or one of the founders of liberation theology, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez. No, no, no I kidding. Believe, still alive, Archbishop. Yeah, at University of Michigan. For one term, he led, he taught, led lectures. He was amazing. Well, that's crazy because I think that's uh, one of the people that is mentioned in that article that Tom suggested. And uh, we, a long time ago, you may or may not remember this, uh, a relative of uh, past correspondent on the show, uh, Danny Muller, uh, John, Reverend John Deere is a relative of his. He, uh, w I think that oh, he, wow. he was the person who was on the show who talked about liberation theology. He was the uh, priest who was working with the nuns in El Salvador. He left the home for a little while, and he's the one who came back and found all of those nuns executed by the El Salvadoran guerrillas. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, he. I think that's the only other conversation we had about liberation theology on the show was with John Deere, which is, I, I, I mean, 
when I was raised Catholic, you know, it was a really big deal that we got a liberation theology priest to come to our, it not, was like, or became a priest at our church, but uh, mm-hmm. he never talked about liberation theology outright. All he did was he was from South Africa. He just was anti-apartheid. And in our mm-hmm. Catholic church, that was not something that was cool. Yeah, probably uh, the uh, soon or eventually to be Pope Benedict didn't uh, like that noise very much. No, he did not. And in fact, they kept uh, saying that they're going to, they kept trying to silence this guy and he just refused to do it. He was an Irish priest who spent a whole bunch of time in South Africa. And it was really great to hear him talk about, that was the first place I ever heard about Nelson Mandela was from a priest in a Roman Catholic church. And wow, those white people did not like it. Wow, dang. <laughs> Does that well, sur- you know, I've talked about it a few times on the moment of truth. I dropped the name of Gustavo Gutierrez. Uh, which is why every once in a while you guys might want to listen to the moment. <laughs> I'm usually running around <laughs> doing other things. I know. you got to go to the bathroom. You got. Oh, my God. How is I, are you, How are you feeling? Jack? I'm feeling much better, better now. I'm feeling much better now. Yesterday was not a good day for me. It was very mm. uh, frightening because uh, of my issues I've had. Yeah, I'm being very careful in everything that I do. So, Excellent. Well, don't be too careful. You can drink and think. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's about it. I got to say, I, I, I woke up with, with what I thought was going to be a cold today. Uh, I woke up sneezing at about like 5.58 in the morning, which is a great time to wake up. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. it's two hours before the show starts. Yeah. So I got a bunch of time to like drink coffee and take cold mes- medicine and snort 50-50 water and hydrogen peroxide, clear out my sinuses, and cause great pain. Do you have and, a uh, Do you have a neti pot or a navage? No, what I have is a little shot glass. Oh, and you just I, you don't need a neti pot. <laughs> right. You just pour it in your nose. I mean, you've got a big enough nose. I've got a big enough <laughs> nose. I don't need an extra. I don't need a spout to shove it up in there. Like you could pour pour it in with a bucket into <laughs> my nose. Isn't that waterboarding? <laughs> You know, it, I mean, every every health aid and every therapy can also be used as a punishment and a, a torture, See? like dentistry. Imagine if someone just did that to you on the street. <laughs> dentistry. That's a, Started poking around. That's a crime. You go, excuse me, sir, That you're out of line. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Yes. Until next time. Yeah. Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. That is currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. Remember, without you, we've got nothing. So thanks to you for all of your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell. You can still leave it at this very moment at our Facebook page or tweet it at us or email it to us at thisishellradio@gmail.com. But we got to have your answer in right now. Because Dan is now going to remind us what is this week's question from hell and share whatever few answers are remaining. Dan, has anybody responded to the question from hell? They have. And uh, don't forget that this week's question from hell is what advice that's good for your and the planet's health are you insisting is an, an infringement upon your rights? We have one answer under the wire. From SLS, who answers, try eating less cheese. <laughs> try eating less cheese? That's all right. We SLS. all have goals. Yeah, here we go. Uh, the answers I liked most were try eating less cheese is pretty good. Kim G saying, not always being a ray of sunshine. Neil C saying, I'd like to exercise my right not to exercise. 
Uh, Cody saying how I can properly compensate if I don't buy the most fuel inefficient lifted truck and roll coal all around the suburbs. I really did like epistemological breakfast club saying you will have to pry my 6,000 square foot house filled with sports and recreation equipment I never use and mega screen TVs in every room I do use from my cold dead hands but first you will have to pry out the potato chips and soda pop so that makes this week's winner Dan you got any uh, favorites in there? Boom, soda pop. Yeah, I do like soda pop. Epistemological. Breakfast Club, you are the winner of today's, uh, this week's question from hell. All you have to do is tell us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we'll get it in the mail to you as quickly as we can. My answer to this week's question from hell, what advice that's good for you and uh, for your and the planet's health, are you insisting as an infringement of your rights. So you're telling me that just because the government says there's cancer causing forever chemicals in lakes and rivers throughout the United States, I'm not supposed to eat the fish that swim in the waters. And just because government scientists say alcohol can cause a variety of cancers and diseases that shorten lives, I'm not supposed to drink booze. This weekend, I'm getting a gun to protect my home, my family, my fishing pole, my beers from government agents breaking into my house and taking my fishing pole and beer because I know that's what they're planning on doing. Once they give us any kind of advice whatsoever, the next step, jackbooted Nazis kicking down your door to take away everything from you, as happened with everything else like bacon and eating too much sausage and Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to the question from hell. It's always truly appreciated. Dan, next week uh, here on This Is Hell, we will be playing This Is Hell, the lost early pandemic episodes and interviews at the very beginning of the pandemic in the United States. Starting in early March 2020, we were unable to deliver new episodes to the station at WNUR as the entire campus of Northwestern University where our home station, Chicago Sound Experiment, is located. It took a few months for the station to get back up and running remotely, but during those few months, we could not get to the station. And so we are still doing shows, but they were only here at thisishell.com, as well as at our other affiliates. We were very lucky to have all the support that we got from you, our listeners, so we could build these studios just before the pandemic started. So to show our appreciation to all of our WNUR listeners who have been tuning into the show since July of 1996, we will we'll be playing interviews from the early days of the pandemic that never were aired on Chicago's Sound Experiment. Alex is currently going through the archives to determine which interviews we will play and when he's done spelunking. Uh, we will announce next week's featured interviews on social media and we'll be mentioning hopefully tomorrow on Patreon. I will be here co-hosting next week with producers Monday through Wednesday with a new live Patreon on Thursday. So tune in next week for This Is Hell, The Lost Early Pandemic Tapes. Thanks to this week's producers, Sebastian Vupper, Lindsey Gorey, Dan Hill. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. To Ronaldo Magaldi for This Week in Rotten History. Thanks to Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Humiston, Just Because. 
talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I will be setting up next week's broadcast of This Is Hell, the lost early pandemic tapes with a trip down recent memory lane and look back at the time just before and just after the COVID-19 pandemic began. And we'll be sharing our 2007 conversation with Salim Noné on how the U.S. was destabilizing the Horn of Africa with the War on Terror and the Horn of Africa remains destabilized by the U.S. from the War on Terror. Join me, members of the This Is Hell crew, and other This Is Hell listeners for This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think, at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, which has returned to its regular Wednesday evening time, beginning around 6 p.m. and going till around 10. Drop by, join us, and if you do, I will give you a free book and even a tour of our studios. That's This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday evening starting around 6, running until about 10 at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Dan, thanks again for producing today's show. No worries. There's only one way we can get you can get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Ah. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>